covered in it. Father, thank you for, um, I just thank you for your goodness. And Lord, thank you for the snow. I know that it's a blessing on those who trust you and those who don't, that we're all blessed. So thank you for being generous in your blessings and uh, toward us. And help us tonight as we jump into some more of these books. It's going to be uh, fun. These are good books. And uh, we just love what you've done and given us. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Okay, tonight we're going to talk about Job, since we didn't talk about Job last week. And then um, on historical books, we have First and Second Samuel and First Chronicles. I'm going to say very little about First Chronicles since it overlaps with Second Kings, Second uh, Samuel, excuse me. So what we talk about with First Samuel and Second Samuel will cover First Chronicles. Um, but I do want to spend more time in Psalms. Uh, there's a lot to be talked about there. So let's say let's uh, talk a few minutes about Job. Let me tell you some things about Job. I, I put Job, I didn't put the timeline up here tonight. I put Job in the timeline of uh, during the monarchy about that period, but we're not really sure when Job was written. There's a lot of different theories on it because there's very little temporal information inside um, inside the book. Um, could have been written as early as a- Abraham. I'm, I'm sorry, not written. It could be covering a period of time equivalent to Abraham. Uh, there's nothing in there about the law and the way that they measure his wealth would give you an indication that it would could be earlier than that. Uh, but we're not really sure, to be honest with you. So Job kind of uh, stands unique and alone and presents a challenge, uh, presents something about God that you don't get in other places. The author of the book is anonymous. Um, we do know that Job is offer, offering sacrifices without the benefit of a priest, and there's nothing in the book about the Mosaic Law, which means he's either outside of Israel's history or he's earlier than Israel's history. His, by the way, there's handouts back there. Uh, his life spans 140 years, which reflects back to an earlier time in Genesis. So we're not really sure, but we can say this. <coughs> Job is a literary masterpiece that's unsurpassed in the ancient Near East for its quality, its... Uh, organization, the things that it has to say. Job is a story about suffering. That's its primary message, um, which is unique in the Bible. It tells us lots of things about it. Although it gives insight into how we might suffer or how suffering might occur, it does not answer the question, why me? But it does reveal that suffering is not always the result of sin. That's one of the things we learn, which is very helpful. Um, because if we didn't know that, that was a that was a belief in the ancient world that the, if something's wrong with you, it's because you you have been sinning, and the gods are ticked off at you. And so, it, so God for God to provide this book is an act of grace to say, whoa, 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 hold on a minute, this isn't always about you. There's a lot bigger things. You're part of a much bigger story here. Uh, it, it Job's story reveals the significance and advantage of theological reflection, how to think accurately about God something that we all need throughout human history. We all reflect. Very few of us reflect theologically or spiritually. Uh, Just talk to anybody that's lost their job. They're reflective. (laughs) We reflect all the time. How is it that we drive down the road, (coughs) we have a tire blowout, get a little nervous, but we manage to get the car off the road, we didn't hurt ourselves, and uh, we're getting ready to go to a meeting, so maybe we're dressed up, and we're thinking, ah, and a guy pulls up behind us and says, here, let me fix your tire. I'm a mechanic, and he changes the tire. And you give him some money. We say, thank you. You get back on the road, and you're five minutes late, and you make it to your meeting okay. 
How do we go through that experience, but we never stop and think, what was God doing? If we truly actually believe in a sovereign God who's very engaged in everything that happens with our lives, where do we, how is it that we don't do that? We go to bed at nighttime, we wake up in the morning, we struggle through all the things that go on in life, and we do this over these cycles over and over and over again. But how often do we pause and say, Lord, thank you, because I know that if you let Satan, I would be dead that fast. Therefore, every second of my day is an act of your protection and provision. You see what I mean? We reflect, we just don't reflect about God and his engagement with us. So Job is one of those books that helps us think through the significance and advantage of theological reflection, reflection, thinking accurately about God and us all the time. It raises the question, do you believe, do you really believe God is working in your life for good? Do you really believe that? That's the question that raises it. And we say yes, but it's often an academic answer. It becomes very real to us when something tragic happens. That's when we really start to answer the core question, do we really believe that what God is going to do is good? You know, when I was uh, <coughs> when I was in Germany as a new missionary working with the U.S. military, mostly Army, um, we just got there, and I'd only been there a couple weeks in country, and I went out to the prison in Mannheim, the military prison, to consider starting a Bible study. So I walked in and uh, met with a bunch of soldiers that were incarcerated for a variety of reasons. Mannheim, Germany is where soldiers from all around Europe, that's where they came back then. That's where the uh, kind of the prison and holding facility was. And so um, I talked to these guys, and up walks this young guy, and he uh, told me a story I've never forgotten. In fact, some of you, I think I've shared it once here. You might have heard it. But this young guy came up to me, and he said, um, I was raised in a Christian family. He said, I'm married, and I have a young son, uh, not even a year old. And he said, when I got here, I uh, we were stationed in Greece, first time away from home, first time out of the United States. He said, I, I didn't know what to do, and I was lonely, and so my guys in my uh, platoon, they went out drinking, invited me to go with them. Well, I've never even drunk before, so I went out with them. And um, so we drank, and we got drunk and got in a fight, and I killed a Greek national in the fight. And he said, so uh, under the status of forces agreement, if the, cr- if the crime that you committed is potentially a capital crime, they will not allow you to be extradited back to the United States. That's part of the agreement the United States has with all the um, foreign countries because foreign countries don't believe in execution. So they wouldn't allow him to be uh, tried in the U.S. He was tried in the Greek system. He's being held in a military prison. And he said, um, he says, I've gone through all my appeals process, and I just found out yesterday uh, I lost my last appeal. And he said, I'm convicted of uh, murder, and sentenced to life in prison, hard labor. I already spent three years in a Greek, I mean, three months in a Greek prison before I came here. And he said, um, I'm allowed one person, not two, a month, visiting privileges for 15 minutes. I won't die of old age. And he just had tears, just crying his eyes out. He goes, I won't ever see my son grow up, all because of a stupid mistake. What do I do with that? Now, I'm a brand new Christian, I mean, a brand new missionary thinking, wow, we didn't talk about that in seminary. (laughs) This is where you begin to answer the question, do you believe that God is really working in your life for good? Do you really believe that? And I I didn't know what to say, and I just said, you know, the only answer I have for you is that one day we will meet again, and you will learn something about grace that I never had a chance to learn. I'm really sorry just gave him a hug and he was gone the next day and never saw him again. Just 
spend my life with short 10-minute conversations. And, you know, you think about consequences. And when tragedy set steps into our personal world, not even into the world of our friends or people around us, we're saddened by it. We may give tears, but until, until tragedy really steps into our life, personally, do we begin to ask the question, do we believe that God has put an arm around us? And um, how you answer that question will dictate what your faith looks like. That's what went along in the book of Job. And uh, it's a very important question. Redemptively, it reveals an early example of where God was um, intending to move, if you will, because he's moving away from the retribution theology, you reap what you sow, which is still prevalent in the world today. That's very common, um, and it's partly true, but it's not exclusively true. So if something bad happens to you, you must have done something bad, right? I mean, that's our natural thought. And and Job is slowly moving us away from that. His case is very exceptional, and it surprises his friends in that God does not follow the accepted norms or accepted scripts. They give him the accepted norms and scripts, and and God doesn't follow them. So this sets the early stage for the coming new covenant. That's what it does. It lays the groundwork for a different way of thinking that will begin to appear in the New Testament. Because in Romans 8, we find out that God is at work in all things for your good. And Job surfaces that principle um, in a war, at a time when now it's unheard of. So, so Job sets the stage, the story, for the later new covenant where God is sovereign and guarantees that whatever happens to you, he will make sure it's good. It will turn out for your best, even if it feels at the moment not the best. The faithful will benefit from the evil that they suffer. Now, God doesn't always take away consequences, but he does make sure you benefit from it. That's a sign of incredible grace that you will even step into sin in a terrible way and God promises to turn it around, turn something good, make something good out of it. And we're going to see some examples of that through all the um, first, second Samuel time. So the basic storyline is that Job, uh, he has a great perspective about life and death. So you, you may remember the story. He, uh, Satan, along with all the other angels, goes before God and God, God is the one that says, hey, uh, hey, Satan, you notice my servant Job down there? Uh, pretty faithful man. Hey, he's the most faithful man on the earth. I mean, it's the one thing you never want God to say about you in the heavens is, have you noticed my servant Elisha? <laughs> I, you really want to fly below the radar. <laughs> and Satan says, well, of course. I'm not allowed to touch him. So we learn a little bit about how what Satan is allowed and not allowed to do through this story at the same time. He said, of course, you protect him. You know, just let me have let me ha- let me have him and you'll see what's pressure. And God says, OK, he's yours. And so in one, like literally three minute period, he finds out he has lost everything. His children have all died. All of his crops are gone. His animals are gone. The only one left is his wife, who later on, I think, wishes she was gone. And um, it's all gone. And so his response is. In chapter 1, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And so his, his perspective at the very beginning is really delightful. It's really wonderful. It's very good. He refuses to curse God. He has a very high view of faith. You can see why God pointed him out as a faithful man. So then, a little bit later on, Satan come, he comes back before God, and, Job, and God says, Huh, look at that. Job's so faithful. Well, of course, you won't let me touch his body. Let me have at him. And God said, you can do whatever you want, just don't take his life. And, he's, and next thing you know, he goes through this year of absolute misery 
he has pottery shards that he's scraping the boils off. And he's, you know, when you read it, it's just a year of sitting there in the dirt, just in pain. His wife says, are you crazy? Curse God and die. Just get it over with. So the story then introduces all of his friends. They become to give, they come along to give him advice, if you will. And the advice sounds very similar to what we do today. So I'm just going to read to you some of the snippets of the advice, because I want you to watch what happens to Job in this story. His first friend, Eliphaz, suggests that an injustice has occurred. Um, in chapter 5, verse 8, he says, this is Eliphaz talking, If I were you, I would appeal to God. I would lay my cause before him. He performs wonders that cannot be fathomed, miracles that cannot be counted. He provides rain for the earth, for example. So he says, if I were you, I would appeal to God. So the inference is that an injustice has occurred. Uh, God probably made a mistake or overlooked it. And so, uh, Job, you have a case. And so Job responds in chapter 6, verse 8, Oh, that I might have my request, that God would grant what I hope for. That God, And so he's saying, I... I I wish that God would listen. And he says here, I wish that God would crush me. Um, but most important, I wish that he would listen. I wish I could go before him and he would pay attention. And you've probably, some of you have felt that, where you've prayed to God and cried out, and, and God didn't seem to listen to you. Uh, he is listening, but it doesn't look like, feel like he's listening. So Job's response is pretty mild. So then Bildad and Zophar come along, and they say actually suggest that he has a case in chapter 8. So I'm going to jump through these. You can read it. If you read the whole thing, it's, it's pretty wild what happens. So I'm isolating some verses here. Chapter 8, verse 5. If you seek, if you will seek God earnestly and plead with the Almighty, if you are pure and upright, even now he will rouse himself on your behalf and restore you to your prosperous state. So if you kind of repent and get everything in order and go to God, then he'll take care of it. So God is no longer a God with whom we bow and worship, but he's a God with whom we can present our case. That's what they're doing. Very standard for us to take this approach to people. You know, is everything okay in your life? And he's saying, well, you know, is your life in order? You know, think about what we do with this. Okay, so in chapter 9, we have Job responding. Job says, indeed, I know that this is true, but how can mere mortals prove their innocence before God? Though they wish to dispute with him, they could not answer him one time out of a thousand. His wisdom was profound. So Job responds, he said, he agrees, he acknowledges it, but God even, you know, how could you present this before God a little bit later in, in verse 20 of chapter 9? Even if I were innocent, my mouth would condemn me. If I were blameless, it would pronounce me guilty. Although I am blameless, I have no concern for myself. I despise my own life. So there he begins to focus on himself rather than God. Remember his opening statement? You know, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And that, that, that focus is slowly shifting because the pain is growing to what's happening. And I remember you've heard me say that pain makes our world smaller and smaller and smaller so that we pretty soon are just whittled down to just me. It's all about me, and the pain is great. And you see this transition happening. His pain has exceeded his ability to understand. He's allowed his pain to blind him to God's purpose. So he begins to demand answers. In chapter 10, I loathe my very life. Therefore, I will give free reign to my complaint and speak out in the bitterness of my soul. I say to God, do not declare me guilty, but tell me what charges you have against me. 
Does it please you to oppress me, to spurn the work of your hands, while you smile on the plans of the wicked? So you, he's beginning to take God on now, which is, it's far, it's far away from the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. All of a sudden, he's beginning to demand some things from God. So his friend Zophar comes along and says, if you get your life together, this will pass. Chapter 11, verse 13. Uh, if you devote your heart to him and stretch out your hands to him, if you put away the sin that is in your hand and allow no evil to dwell in your tent, then free of fault, he will, you will lift up your face. You will stand firm and without fear. Lifting up your face is an idiom for you'll be restored. Okay, that's what the king would do. He would, you know, you're brought before him, off with your head or raise the head. Okay, and so you, you will be restored. And so Zophar is kind of making that case. So Job responds, um, and he's allowed the pain to now sh- com- almost completely shift his perspective. Chapter 13, verse 3. He says, I desire to speak to the Almighty and to argue my case with God. So now he's beginning to say, I'm ready to present my case. In other words, God's made a mistake. If God only thought about it, then he would know the truth. A little bit later on in verse 15. Though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. That's a verse we often quote. I will surely defend my ways to his face. We never quote the second half of that sentence, by the way, which is kind of funny. Though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. I will surely defend my ways to his face. Given the chance, I'm going to let him know that I'm right and he's wrong. So um, he's deceived himself that he will be vindicated. God is the one that's wrong. The next step Job becomes convinced that not only is God wrong, but he's at fault. And he begins to blame God. Chapter 16, verse 7. Surely, God, you have worn me out. See that? You have worn me out. You have devastated my entire household. You have shriveled me up and it has become a witness. My gauntness rises up and testifies against me. God assails me and tears me in his anger. He gnashes his teeth at me. My opponent fastens on me his piercing eyes. People open their mouths going, whoa, look at Job. And it's your fault. So you see how far removed that is from the Lord gives and the Lord takes away? Blessed be the name of the Lord. Well, he's well into this year of pain. And the pain is wearing him down. So God's at fault. Then you have him beginning to demand from God. Chapter 19, verse 7. I, though I cry violence, I get no response. Though I call for help, there is no justice. He has blocked my way, so I cannot pass. He has shrouded my path from darkness. He has stripped me of my honor and removed the crown from my He tears me down on every side. He has roots my hope. His anger burns against me, and on and on and on. So he's now, he's now beginning to demand that God play fair. He's beginning to claim his rights. The final step is Job demands the ultimate. All the way over in chapter 23, the ultimate is he has a cause, God will listen, and God will be the one to repent. Not Job. God will be the one to repent. It is God who must change. Job can no longer see because of his complete preoccupation with pain now. Chapter 23, Job replied, Even today my complaint is bitter. His hand is heavy in spite of my groaning. If only I knew where to find him, if only I could go to his dwelling. I would state my case before him, fill my mouth with arguments. I would find out how he would answer me, and I would consider what he would say. 
Would he vigorously oppose me? Absolutely not. He would not press charges against me. There the upright can establish their innocence, and there I would be delivered forever from my judge. God is the one that will judge. Okay, he's now made the complete turn from the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord, to he's the one that will defend. Do you see that transition? All I did was pick out these verses to help you see in 23 chapters, this is a classic example of what pain does. When pain and tragedy enter your life and you begin to wear down, this is what happens. You begin to slowly lose your focus. It's just remarkable. Job's decay was gradual. His perspective deteriorated gradually. Uh, It shifted from God to self. And what's remarkable is that in James 5.11, he's pictured as a hero. Have you considered the patience or endurance of Job? He's used as an example of a faithful man who endured. That's what's remarkable. It gives us glimpses into the grace of God that he allows this, knows what's going on with us, and loves us anyway. I th- sometimes I think it's like a parent whose two-year-old child says, I hate you, I hate you, I hate you. And the parent just smiles and says, I know, I know, but it's okay. <laughs> That's what's going on. So when we look at God's response, all the way over in chapter 38, we learn something about God. Here's what God does not do. He doesn't chastise Job. He doesn't condemn Job, doesn't rebuke him. He doesn't criticize, he doesn't abandon him, he doesn't comfort him. Interestingly enough, what he does do is he exposes him. Remember, God's in the business of redemption. He exposes the weakness in Job. So, chapter 38. Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. He said, ha, who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I hate this. I love the old translation, gird up your loins like a man. Man up. <laughs> Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you will answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? Tell me if you understand. Who marked out the dimensions? Surely you know. And he begins to systematically reduce Job and humble him by exposing how much he doesn't know. And that's how he started out. Who is this that obscures my plans without real knowledge? Surely you know. And so he just begins all of these. You can read down through there. It's just chapter 38 and 39 are just remarkable how God calls attention to how much he doesn't know, how much Job doesn't know. Okay, so that's kind of the first test. But then he goes on in chapter 40 and he starts second test. So the Lord said to Job second time, will you contend with the almighty? Will you correct him? Really? Job answered the Lord, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice, um, but I will say no more. But the Lord's not done. The Lord spoke to Job again out of the storm. Man up. Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you will answer me. And here it is. The entire book is moving to chapter 40, verse 8. This is the real case right here. Would you discredit my justice, Job? Would you really do that? He could have said, this is Satan that did this, but he didn't. He said, would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me 
in order to justify yourself? Is that really, really what you want to do? The core question of the whole book and of life. Do you really believe I'm good? Well, I let this happen. I made this happen. I'll take full responsibility. As far as we know, Job didn't even know anything about Satan. God says, I take full responsibility. Is that really what you want to do? Job's final response shows you that in that in this one little series of tests with God, that God restores him. Chapter 42, Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all these things. I think of Peter. You know that I love you, Lord. You, I know you can do all these things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You ask, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful me to, for me to know. You said, listen now, and I will speak. I will question you, and you shall answer me. My ears have heard you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. I'm sorry. That's Job's response. So his response is humility and brokenness. His response, his perspective has shifted all the way back to where it was to begin, in spite of all the pain. Um, <coughs> this is before God healed him, by the way. Okay. Now, his final response has to do with his friends. After the Lord had said these things to Job, he said to Eliphaz, the Temanite, I'm angry with you and your two friends because you have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. Now, these are the friends giving him all the advice. So now, take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and sacrifice a burnt offering for yourselves. My servant Job will pray for you and I will accept his prayer and not deal with you according to your foolishness. Now, think about what it's like when you give out advice. You have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz, the Temanite, Bildad, the Shuhite, and Zophar, the Naathanite, did what the Lord told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. After Job had prayed for his friends, the Lord restored his fortune and gave him twice as much as he had before. Twice as many goods, twice as many uh, children. He had, all, you know, he had a bunch more children and all that. And so it gives us insight into what God thinks about um, just be careful what kind of advice you give. You have spoken words that are not true. And so you better go to your friend uh, uh, Job. I will listen to him. Otherwise, I will deal with you the way you need to be dealt with. So pretty powerful words. So what do we learn from this story? Suffering does not mean that God has forsaken his children. It's just the opposite. Suffering means that you, God, has considered you worthy for whatever reason. God picked you out because you are his primary means of revealing his glory, and he trusts you. He trusted Job. He wasn't in the worry, in a bit worried about Job. Uh, even though Job at the end is shaking his fist at him, didn't bother God in the slightest. God knew that Job would end up glorifying him. Philippians 1.29, when we get there, says, To you it has been granted... And that word granted is the verb form for the word grace in, the, in Greek. We don't have a verb for grace in our language. So to you it has been, in Old English, grace. To you it has been graced by God. It's a grace of the Lord, not only to believe in the name of Jesus, but to suffer for his sake. Why? Because suffering is the only language that you connect with with the world. That's why. The moment you start suffering, they get it. The world instantly gets it. What they don't get is when you respond righteously. 
That's what the surprise. Because when you respond with grace and your faith remains intact, because their faith isn't there and they don't respond in grace. So suffering is the only way that you have. And so if God really wants to fulfill his mission and use you in that process, then suffering throughout life is going to be part of it. And the world will look. My wife died 32 years ago. And I recently saw her doctor for the first time in 32 years. And uh, I was down at St. Joe's and I looked him up. He was just a young resident when I first met him. Now he's the chairman of the pulmonology department. So I went up and I I asked the receptionist, is Dr. Collins by chance in today? And she said, yeah, do you have an appointment? And I said, no, I don't. And he said, well, he's really swamped. He's just got meetings full time. He just doesn't have time to see you. And I said, okay, that's no problem. She goes, what are you here for? Are you a friend of his? I said, no, no, I'm not. I said, he, uh, 32 years ago, you know, it's probably 30, 31. It's a couple years ago. He goes, uh, so 30 years ago, he, uh, he took care of my wife who died. And um, she had cystic fibrosis. And, and he was there through all that, through the birth of my two children. And his receptionist said, Judy Howard. I said, how do you know that? And she said, because I was, uh, I was brand new. I've been his, his assistant for 32 years, and that was the very first choice. We never forgot. Don't you go anywhere. And she slipped through the door, and he comes out, and he's much older now, you know, 32 years. And he said, Mr. Howard, it's so good to see you. What was your daughter's name? I said, Cassie. How is she? She's healthy. She's got three grandkids, another one on the way. Three of my grandkids. And he just smiled, and he said, you know, um, I love the Lord because of your wife. She always talked to me about the Lord, and she helped me reconnect to the faith of my childhood. I never forgot it. Suffering is the one language you have in common. It's the one language where you connect with the world, and God wants to use you. That's one of the ways he's going to do it. Another thing we learn is that it's okay to question God, but not to renounce him. It's okay to ask why, but not to demand an answer. Another thing we learn is that God will often uncover and expose you rather than comfort you. Comfort will come, but he really wants to use you and mature you and redeem you, and so he doesn't mind exposing you. Jesus did that all the time. What did he say to the Samaritan woman? Go get your husband. She said, well, I'm not married. He goes, that's true. You've been married five times, and the man you're living with now is not your husband. That's exposure. It's not condemnation. See that? So that's what, when you move into the presence of the Lord, you do get exposed. So when he went to the home of uh, Zacchaeus, the tax collector, he never said a word. He said, Zacchaeus, come down from the tree. I'm going to eat with you today. Well, he, the Jews don't eat with unclean people, especially tax collectors. They rob and steal. So he goes to his home. He has lunch. And Zacchaeus, just being present in the presence of Jesus, he says, I'm going to give back to the people I've cheated four times what I gave up. And Jesus just smiled and said, salvation has come to this house today. Right? That's all he did. And uh, just moving into the presence of the Lord has that exposing effect. And that's we see that with Job. We learn that God controls circumstances and it reveals our character rather than determine it. We tend to think the opposite. Ask anybody, why are you upset? And they always have a reason. I'm upset because and it's something outside. Why are you angry? I'm angry because. Why are you discouraged? I'm discouraged because. The reality is the reason why you're angry is because you're a broken, sinful human. And all the circumstances that may evoke that response, they're just catalysts. So Nancy is a fantastic catalyst in my life. You know, she is. And 
to provoke something that's not good in you. But I've had to learn to say, it's not your fault that I'm angry. I'm angry because I'm broken. If, if I change places with Jesus, he wouldn't respond this way. So the way you respond is a choice that you have. Don't blame circumstances. That makes you weak. I'm discouraged because I didn't, my, the stock market's down. Think about how weak that sounds, that you have placed control of your life in the hands of the stock market? No, I'm discouraged because I'm just a broken, sinful human. That's the reason why. Does that make sense? So circumstances, they don't determine our character. They reveal our character. Howdy. Can I help you with something? Oh, what was the event? Do you remember? Might have been canceled. I think all we know of in the building is just the class over here. But you can look around and see. Okay. So the, um, and if you want to stay for the class, you can. <laughs> so, um, so circumstances are like catalysts. They expose what's already inside. Now, if God wants to transform you, what's the most gracious thing he can do? It's expose the brokenness that's inside of you, right? You can't transform what you can't see. And so God's grace exposes what's inside. That's what this teaches us. So God reveals our character, and then he, re then he redeems it and begins to transform it. And sometimes that's a miserable process. But you've got to give that one over. And that's how God does it. So that's the story of Job. Okay? Powerful story. If you just read it straight through, you get lost in a lot of details. That's why I wanted to pull out this. There's several patterns that emerge when I just pulled out one, and that's Job's response. So uh, if you haven't read it, go read it. It's an amazing story. And you see the fruit of all that begin to appear in the New Testament. It's the grace of God that we suffer. Job is, is considered a hero. He's worthy of emulation. God doesn't mind you getting angry. He doesn't mind that. That's a good question. Uh, it, it fits under the wisdom literature. Okay? Uh, because it's teaching us wisdom. But it's also narrative and history. So it's, it's a unique book, and that has lots of, it has it filled with poetry. In fact, if when you read it, you'll see the language is all set off all the way through there in, in several places in poetic form. So um, a lot of scholars think it's just a parable. It didn't really happen. I have no compelling reason to refuse and say that it's, it's not historical, not real. Um, but it, we put it, we classify it under the wisdom literature, teaching us wisdom about ourselves and how to live our, our life and live out our faith. So it's okay to make a mistake. Don't renounce God and know it. Just don't do that. No, not at all. Because Job, he, he never lost his faith. When we get into the prophets, we're going to see this idea develop even more, where God says in Isaiah to the Jews, you are, you are deaf and you are blind. You don't have eyes to see and ears to hear. It doesn't matter what I say or what I do. You don't get it, and you don't believe. Very next chapter, he says, um, I'm going to call all the gods together and present a case. We're going to have a lawsuit, and then we're going to have them present their witnesses. I'm going to present my witnesses. So come on, gods, where are all your witnesses? Let's come talk, and, and we'll, believe the, we'll believe that you're real if your witnesses show up. And he says, I'm going to call my witnesses. Come on, all you deaf and blind people. It's a fantastic picture. The people who just said, you're deaf and blind, you don't believe a thing. I'm talking, you don't listen, I'm acting, you don't see it. Come on, you're my witnesses. Why? 
Because it, his, what makes us effective witnesses is not what we do for God. That's what we've got to turn around. It's what God does for us. That's what makes us effective witnesses, is what God does for us and through us. That's far more critical than what we do for God, and we really hammer home the opposite in Christianity. And Isaiah just completely reverses it. They can't even see and hear God, and yet he calls them as witnesses because they show, they reveal his grace without even knowing it because of his love for them. So, so Job, you know, he shakes his fist at God at the end. Doesn't bother God yet. It's like when your two-year-old says, I hate you, I hate you. All right? So, it hurts your feelings? Yeah. Yeah, well, you don't like to hear it, but it's like, you know, as you get older, you just laugh at those things pretty soon. Right? Your kids get angry at you from time to time as parents when you do things that have to be done. And um, so did Satan win? Absolutely not. Job is still faithful. That's why he titled it who he was at the end. But he's faithful because of who God is. What makes him a good example is because of God's grace. If we could only get that one message through to us, then we can begin to relax a little bit as Christians. We put an awful lot of pressure on Christians to perform well. We really do. And sometimes I just want to say, guys, it's okay to trip and fall. It's okay to make a mistake. Just tell us when you do. Don't run from us. When my kids all started uh, their senior year, I pulled them aside and I said, for the next year, a year from now when you go to college, I won't be there to help you make decisions. You won't need me, but you won't be there. And so for the next year, this is prep this year. So for your senior year, uh, you no longer have to ask my permission for anything. Uh, all I ask is a couple things. Number one is that you tell me what you're going to do. I won't stop you. Number two is when you make a mistake, you trust me enough to come tell me that you made a mistake so I can process it with you. And number three is you let me know and be honest where you're going. When I go to the store, I plan on going to the store. I don't go to my neighbor's house next door and says to his wife or anything like that. I go to the store. Just tell me where you're going. That's just basic courtesy. So it's really funny to watch them. Dad, uh, can I go out with my friends Friday night? I don't know. It's your decision. What deal? Okay, I'm going out with my friends Friday night. Okay, where are you going? We're going to go to the movies. All right. When are you going to be home? Is it okay if we stay out till 1 in the morning? That's your choice, not mine. Your decision. Okay, we're staying out till 3. Okay. And I'm thinking in my mind, you're about to learn a good lesson. You know? So they, they don't have to ask my permission. And they go from not knowing what to do and feeling a little awkward to throughout the year to begin to make good decisions. And you know what? Pretty soon they come back and they say, Dad, I made a mistake. What would you do? I went out and got drunk last night. Ooh, ouch. You know, what happened? And uh, now they're all adults and married. And guess what? Hey, Dad, you have a minute to talk about a problem I have? <laughs> right? Let them learn how to make those kind of decisions. Is it scary? Where do you think all this gray hair came from? Oh, my gosh. It's four kids who are seniors. <laughs> okay. We're going to switch gears completely to the historical books. And we're looking at this grouping because they... They all fit about the time, same time frame that the nation is converting into a monarchy. Can I remember the basic story? God has brought them out of the Exodus. They wandered for 40 years under Moses' leadership. They entered the land and took possession of the land as God promised they would. That's under Joshua's leadership. At the end of Joshua, Joshua dies and the elders all die. The next generation doesn't remember what God has done. They turn away from him. And they begin to serve the gods of the land that they've just occupied. That's the story of the judges we looked at that last week. And you got those cycles where they spiral slowly down into a complete mess. 
sin everywhere you turn, gods everywhere, no leadership, no unity, no strength, you're not honoring the Lord, none of those things, and it's a mess. Welcome to 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel, Samuel comes on, to, on the scene with Samson, the last judge, okay? They're worshiping all these gods. So Samuel comes onto the scene. So when we look in 1 Samuel, there are three primary themes that stand out in 1 Samuel, distinct themes in the book. Number one is Samuel's ministry himself. Uh, from his birth, Samuel was unique, and he was appointed by God because the, the ju- system of judges didn't work, and God is revealing to the people that you guys are just, you're obstinate, you're big-headed, you're stubborn, you're rebellious, and so I'm going to send somebody to help you. So Samuel was a key figure in the transition between the period of the judges and the monarchy. He's about to set up a monarchy. The period of judges was characterized by much confusion, sin, a lot of corruption, abuse of uh, people that were uh, less fortunate, the marginalized, that sort of thing. So Samuel brought some temporary stability and leadership. So the people feared external threats such as the Philistines, so they began to observe how the surrounding nations had kings ruling over them. These kings provided apparent unity, prosperity, strength, that sort of thing. So they began to demand a king, and God granted their request. Now, we find out that this is actually part of God's plan. He knew this would happen, and he did this on purpose. We'll find out why in just a little bit. So this enters into the second theme of the establishment of the monarchy and the appointment of Saul. So the people selected Saul. They voted for Saul. That's who they wanted. He was tall, good-looking, popular, so God made him a king. This introduced a new period in Israel's history, a monarchy. So centralized power now is rested in the hands of one man, the king. So the rise of the monarchy marked the end of the theocracy where God worked with the nation directly. Now they have an intermediary, the king, to go before them. Um, Israel had, had been under God's direct leadership. Now he's under the, direct, they're under the direct leadership of the king. Um, Saul was unfaithful. He blew it. And he shows himself unworthy of the kingship by disobeying God's commands. He does that consistently as he moves closer and closer to the end. His final act is to, um, is to go to the witch at Endor uh, because God has now anointed David, which is the third key theme of David's rise to power. And, uh, and he's jealous of David. And he's, David runs from him for about 10 years. So just like Moses, Moses knew when he was 40 that he was going to lead Israel out of Egypt. But it wasn't until he was 80 that it got to happen. And in the 40 years in between, he, he left and was exiled and went out into the wilderness. 40 years later, God brings him back. Well, David is anointed by uh, Samuel. And then 10 years later, he becomes the king. What happens during that 10 years is really instructive. But in that 10-year period, Saul hates him. He hates him worse and worse, becomes jealous. And so Saul's final act, he's so jealous, he goes to the witch at Endor, a medium, which God had said, don't do. And here is the king doing it. And he talks her into bringing somebody up. And so, um, so she doesn't realize that it's Saul until the person that comes up from the dead is Samuel, because Samuel has died. And she just is like, wah! What have you done? You know, I'm going to die. You're the king. This is the rule. All the witches have to die. He goes, I'm not going to kill you. It's okay. And so Samuel comes up and he says, why did you bring me up from the dead? 
Because you did this, this very day God has demanded your life and taken your kingdom from you. Boom. He dies and dies. Like that. So Saul does not end well. This allows David's rise to prominence. So Saul finishes poorly. The Lord chooses David. So the people chose Saul, but God chose David as Israel's next king. He was a young Judean shepherd boy. He grew up in Bethlehem. After his anointing, his fame began to grow, and he demonstrated himself as a military-capable leader who was also faithful. So the story of David and Goliath, for instance, is really critical to establish the character of David because the nation of Israel, they were there to fight, and they were terrified of this, these Philistines. And this one Philistine, Goliath, is a giant, and David's just a shepherd boy. He's not even part of the army. He's back tending the sheep. And so his father says, uh, go check on the rest of the boys, make sure they're okay. So he wanders around until he finds them. And he goes up and he says, uh, he goes, you guys okay? Yeah, we're okay. And all of a sudden he hears Goliath out there taunting as, ha- as he did day after day after day. You know, where's your God, Israel? You know, and all that sort of stuff. Send out somebody to fight me. And so David looks around and he goes, how come nobody's willing to fight the guy? And his older brother said, who the heck are you to judge us? You're just a wimpy, you know, shepherd boy. And David said, are you guys out of your mind? We serve the one true God, Yahweh. I'm going to go out and fight him. So Saul says, well, here, take my armor. So he puts his armor on him. He's way too big for him, and he's too heavy. He can barely lift the sword. And he's trying to stand. He goes, I don't need all that. Takes it all off. And he goes out there just as a shepherd boy. He goes out there with his sling, five slings. And he runs out there, and he shames Goliath by being just a wimpy teenager. What? You're sending this guy out? Of all the guys in your, this is the guy? And David said, yeah, and I'm going to take your head today. (laughs) Hits him right in the forehead, which knocks him out, falls backwards, faints. David takes his sword and cuts off his head and kills him. We learn about David's character. That story is critical. It's one of the stories all of our kids know from Sunday school. We learn about that even as a young boy, his faith in God was, was very strong. And that's what we learn about that. It becomes critical in the whole story because David begins to distinguish himself as a great leader who trusted God. And they could see God's presence in his life everywhere he went. So he be, Saul became jealous of David, tried to kill him, and David would, would eventually become the archetypal king for all of Israel's history and eventually all of New Testament theology. So David becomes the key prototype, the picture of what Jesus is going to do. Okay, does he fail? Miserably. We're going to look at a couple of those. Failures, but that's what happens. All right, another key point uh, that rises in the story of Samuel is the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was the most important religious artifact in Israel. It was built at Sinai under the supervision of Moses, and it represented Israel's, uh, God's presence in their midst, in the midst of Israel. That's what it symbolized. Okay? Now, in most temples of all the surrounding nations, they would build an icon of their god or goddesses and set them in the temple, in the, in the holy place. That's true today. If you go into a Hindu temple, you'll see the priests bring food to a, a concrete statue or a bull or a cow, and they'll walk over and they'll put the food on it. That's symbolizing feeding the gods, appeasing the gods, serving them and taking care of them. That's what they do. But in Israel's temple, they didn't have an icon. They put the Ark of the Covenant in the coveted place, the Holy of Holies, to symbolize God's presence right there. But even then, it was only iconic because the Ark of the Covenant was considered God's footstool. 
That's just kind of where he just propped his foot as he was watching over his people. That's how they saw it. And it's in the Holy of Holies. So the Ark of the Covenant was really very critical. It was, But it was used by Israel several different times as a way to force God into act in a way that they desired. Okay? For example, in 1 Samuel 4, the sons of Eli take the ark into battle and attempt to ensure victory. If we take the ark, God's surely not going to let his ark get captured. Wrong. They get routed, and the Philistines win the ark, and they take it. It's a hilarious story. <coughs> they take the ark back, put it in their temple, and the Philistines get up the next morning, and their god Dagon, which is a huge statue, has fallen face down flat in front of the, the uh, ark of the covenant. So they stand him back up. The next morning, he's fallen face down in, in his arms and things, pieces of him have broken off. And they said, man, this thing is too powerful. We've got to give it back. And so they, they send it back. It's just a really funny story in 1 Samuel 4. So the ark returns to Israel on a cart without a driver. They said the, the ox, the, they'll know where to go. Let's just get this thing out of here. And if it goes that way toward Israel, we'll know that their God is real. And guess what? It does. They, they give it a choice on the Y of the road, and it starts going toward Israel. So it comes back to Israel without even a driver. Then, when the ark was not handled properly, because they didn't follow the rules on how to handle it, one of the guys died. It starts to fall over, and he reaches out to steady it. God kills him on the spot. That's a little bit later under David's reign. Death was the result. So what we learn from this, this all demonstrates the autonomy of the ark. It operated only at the initiative and the discretion of the Lord. We have no control over it. And that's a principle that we begin to learn is that God is going to do what's right. We can never box God in the corner. Don't even try. Don't even try. Don't bargain with God. God, if you only do this, I'll do this. Because you know what? He may do it and you will always fail. You will never fulfill your promise. You can't. So don't even try. And that's what we learn about the ark. There's a couple of stories I want to look at before I go to 2 Samuel. So this is a story of Saul and then David. Let's go to, uh, it's one of my favorite stories. It's at the end of 1 Samuel. Let's see here. Um, Just about in probably chapter 27, I'm guessing. I should have written that on my outline today. Uh, oh, yeah, chapter 27 of 1 Samuel. David thought to himself, one of these days I'm going to be destroyed at the hands of Saul. Now, remember, he's been anointed several years before this. He's been running for his life. The best thing I can do is to bow down and worship God. <laughs> That's not what it says. The best thing I can do is run to the Philistines. What had God said? Don't go to the Philistines. So David goes to the Philistines. I love it. I love these people because they're so human. They just represent me in every area of life. Don't go to the Philistines. I'm kind of afraid of Saul, so I'm going to go to the Philistines. Then Saul will give up searching for me anywhere in Israel, and I will slip out of his hand. So David and his 600 men with, with him left and went to Achish, son of Maok, king of Gath. They settled in Gath with Achish. Each man had his family with him, and David had his two wives. Um, David said to Achish, If I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be assigned to me in one of the country towns, that I may live there. So, verse 6, Achish gave him Ziklag, and it has belonged to the kings of Judah ever since. So David lived in the Philistine territory a year and four months. How long is that? How many months is that? Raise your hand. 16 months. Okay, that's important. Now David and his men went up and raided the Geshurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites. 
from ancient times, these people have lived in the land there as well. When David attacked an area, he did not leave a man or woman alive. He took the sheep, the cattle, the donkeys, the camels, the clothes, and he returned to Achish. So Achish would say, and Achish is one of the rulers, so where'd you go today, David? And David would say, we went against the Negev or against the uh, Jeremiel and against uh, the Canaanites. And he did not leave a man or woman alive to be brought to death, for he thought they might inform on us and say this is what David did. And such was his practice as long as he lived in Philistine territory. So Achish trusted David and said, he has become so obnoxious to his people, the Israelites, that he will be my servant for life. He's never going back. In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces to fight against Israel. Achish said to David, you must understand that you and your men will accompany me in the army. David said, then you will see for yourselves what your servant can do. Achish said, very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. So the Philistines are now getting ready to attack the Israelites. And David, who has been anointed to lead the Israelites, joins the Philistine army to fight them. It's just amazing. <laughs> that's how far removed from God. We saw, we saw Job go 180 degrees. That's David now. David's done the same thing. So the Philistines gathered all their forces on now in chapter 29 because right in the middle of the story is Saul and the witch at Endor. Philistines gathered all their forces at Aphek. So this is the very last period of Saul's life. David's about to become the king, but he's about to, um, he's about to go fight and kill his own, king, his own people. As the Philistine rulers marched with their units of hundreds and thousands, David and his men were marching at the rear with Achish. The commanders of the Philistines says, what's going on with these Hebrews back here? And Achish replied, this is David. He was an officer of Sinkal, uh, I mean, of Saul, king of Israel. He has already been with me for over a year, and from the day he left Saul and Canal, I have found no fault in him. But the commanders were <laughs> angry with Achish and said, are you out of your mind? Jews in the front, Jews in the back, this is never a good scenario. That's, that's my summary of the text. Get this guy out of here. <coughs> Send him back. So Achish called David and said to him, As surely as the Lord lives, you have been reliable, and I would be pleased to have you serve with me in the army. From the day you came to me until today, I have found no fault in you, but the rulers don't approve of you. So now go back in peace. Do nothing to displease the Philistine rulers. But David said, What have I done? What have, what have you found against your servant from the day I came to you until now? The king said, I know you've been pleasing in my eyes, but these commanders, they don't like it. Go back. Just go back. So David and his men, verse 11, got up early in the morning, and they to go back to the land of the Philistines, and the Philistines went up to fight the Israelites. Okay, 16 months, David is living in rebellion and sin. He did what God told him not to do. We have no record during this period of time. God ever talked, I mean, Job ever consulted God, ever talked to God, ever had a conversation with him. And so what's God going to do? This teaches us something about how God thinks of our sin. Okay? David, chapter 30, and his men, they reached Ziklag on the third day. Now the Amalekites had raided Ziklag. They had attacked Ziklag and burned it, had taken captive the women and everyone else, else in it, both young and old. They killed none of them, but they carried them all off as they went on their way. So David and his men go home. Their cities burned to the ground, and their families are gone. When David and his men reached Ziklag, they found it destroyed by fire, and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. David and his men wept aloud until they had no strength left to weep. David's two wives had been captured. Verse 7, David said to Abiathar the priest, Bring me the ephod. 
day, every Abiathar brought it to him, and David inquired of the Lord, Shall I pursue this raiding party? Will I overtake them? It's the first time David talks to God. He consults God in this exchange. Now, according to the way we naturally tend to think about God, what do we expect God to do? David wasn't one of these exponents. Right? What have you been doing? How come you did this when I told you not to do this? So listen to what God says. He says, pursue them. You will certainly overtake them and succeed in the rescue. So David went. Not only did they get all their families back, they got all the loot, and then they routed the Amalekites, and then David repents and said, that was a mistake. Saul, in the meantime, dies in the battle with the Philistines, and David comes back as the king. It's a fabulous story. It's just fabulous. Now, this is my recreation of the story. It's not in the text. You just have to live with it. The Trinity's sitting up there, and God says, because remember, Jesus is sitting at the right hand. Look at David. He's going to do it. <laughs> we just told him not to go to the Philistines. There he goes. Oh, my goodness. So, well, let's see what happens. So we're watching. and Oh, no, he's going to fight against his own people, who I'm about to make him king over. He's already been anointed. He, he's going to do it. He's going to. He did it. I can't believe it. Okay, well, David's out of his mind. He's insane at this moment. We have to intervene. So let's make sure the Philistine commanders send him back. But how are we going to get his attention? Let's think of a creative way to get his attention. Let's have some other marauding army come and steal all of his family. Let's don't let him hurt the families. Let's just let him steal. That'll get his attention. So David comes back, and then when he inquires of God about it, God doesn't condemn him. He doesn't confront him. He just says, go. He doesn't do any of that stuff. He just says, go after them. I've given them into your hands. He goes out, gets all of his family, plus all the stuff, the loot from the Amalekites, comes back bigger, and he comes back as the king of Israel. So here he is for 16 months, totally away from the Lord, and the Lord doesn't condemn him. It's a fabulous story. To me, this captures New Testament theology. It's one of the stories that captures the essence of how God works with us. Okay? That's how he works with us. He's not angry. He's figuring out how to do what's best. Not figuring out, he already knows. But he's going to do what's best for you in each case. So, he's sitting up there and he goes, here's Jim. He's going to do it. He's going to do it. Okay. Okay, now we've got to step in and intervene and rescue him. He's not angry. Not angry at all. As an elder of a church several churches back, one of our other elders, was, um, you've heard me tell the story, his 16-year-old daughter got pregnant, and he came to me just broken and in tears, and he said, I'm going to resign as an elder. And I said, why are you going to resign? Well, because the Bible says you've got to have your children under control. I said, well, that doesn't mean they can't make mistakes, because otherwise they'd be Jesus. So I think your daughter's under control. I said, no, but she got pregnant. Well, let Nancy and I talk to her. Is that okay? So we invited her over, and we sat out back. And I said, tell me what happened. And she said, well, I, I, um, my boyfriend and I, who I really love, she thought she did at the time, he left right after that and never came back, <laughs> of course, because he's pregnant. And then we started fooling around, and then she started to cry. We had sex, and now I'm pregnant, and I'm terrified. And my parents are really wigging out, and I don't know what to do. <laughs> I said, well, they're, they're doing that because they're your mom and dad, because they love you. And I said, when you found out you were pregnant, what was your first thought? 
And she said, I got to go talk to my dad. He'll know what to do. Is that a child that's under control? Absolutely. Is there a dad in the world that wouldn't want his daughter to do that when she made a mistake? Oh, my gosh. That's one of the reasons I started doing that with my older, with my children is because I watched what happened in that story. And I want my children to come back to me and say, I made a mistake, Dad. Can you help me? Sometimes it's financial. I have to bail them out. Sometimes jail. I have to bail them out. <laughs> There's all kinds of reasons they've come back, but they've come back consistently. <coughs> my oldest son just called me a couple days ago with a deep concern. And Dad, I don't know what to do. Can you help me? Isn't that what we want? Right? And that's what God wants. And so this story teaches us that God is not out to punish us. That's not what it's about. God is out to show us grace. He wants us to come back. Punishment is only because you give no other choice. Punishment's not because you sin. You sin all the time and God doesn't punish you. Think about that. You lust after a woman. You cuss, you curse. You get mad at God. Who knows what you do, you know? You lie. And God doesn't punish you. That's not what God's all about. He's not about punishment. He's about discipline. And the concept of discipline in Hebrews 12 is what you think of as an athlete. Okay? He's preparing you. He's teaching you. He wants to bless you. Job's shaking his fist at him, and he blesses him twice over. David walks away, and he blesses him with all the loot from the Amalekites. These are the countless stories over and over and over again. But what God is primarily after is that you turn back to him and say, as Peter did, you know all things. As Job said, I spoke to that knowledge and I repent. You know all things. That's what God's after. That's what these stories teach us. So that's one of my favorite stories because I, you expect God to say, well, where are you, David? What have you been doing? And he doesn't. He says, go after him. He looks at Jesus and says, got his attention. He's back with his dad. So today, let's make him king. Turns back and becomes the king of Israel. Just like that. That's the story of 1 Samuel. Thoughts? Questions? Is that different than how you think about God? Now you see why the theology you come is coming out of the pulpit. It's coming from all these stories, one after the other, which to me say the same thing. I don't ever have a perspective that God is angry with me, even when I'm sinning. In the middle of my sin, there have been many times now where I've said, God, I can't even talk to anyone else. You're the only one I can talk to because you're the only one who understands. Thanks for being gracious and just letting me sin and knowing where the boundaries are to help me. You know, Thanks for having experience with people that struggle like I do. Thanks for knowing me. There's been times where I prayed and said, God, I'm sorry. I'm just broken and sinful. I am. But I'm grateful that I can come to you. Uh, even in the middle of my sin, and you'll know what to do about it. That's what David did. David said, let's go back to God. He'll know what to do. My friend's daughter said, I've got to go tell my father. He'll know what to do. So I went back to my friend and said, here's what she said. And him and his wife just wept. And I said, we got the best daddy in the world. Don't need to confront that daddy. He's already got it. Life would teach her that it was a mistake. We don't need to tell her that. Let's just welcome her back, walk with her on the journey, help her have her child, and let's raise it well. She came back, and uh, we just loved her. Now, that fast forward, that's 10 years ago. Fast forward, um, about five years ago, she gets married, and I'm at her wedding. 
she walks up to me and she says, gives me a hug and she said, the road to honor is very long and winding. And I said, yeah, it is, but you walk it. And she just gave me a big hug and we just had the third child. And uh, this is amazing. That's what God wants, is what she wants. Yeah, we prefer our children not to come. God would prefer we not come, but what he's most after is that we come back to him because he is trustworthy. You don't have to worry about God. I've told you, do not be afraid. It's not the most frequent command. It's one in the Bible. Do not be afraid of the Lord. You can go back to him in the midst of your rebellion, and it's okay. My stories are running through. Thoughts, comments? I wish that were true. You know who shames us more? Our fellow Christians. Our peers. Right? That's why we have those idioms, those sayings in our culture. It's easier to talk to a, uh, a bartender than it is a pastor or a priest or a friend. Right? I mean, isn't that true? When you find yourself in deep sin, the last thing you feel like doing is walking in here and telling anybody. You'd be better off telling somebody you don't know. So I think Satan is behind it, but we've created this way of thinking that we need to tell people that they're wrong. You know, I never met a person, honestly, that was in sin that didn't know it. I long for the day when somebody says, yeah, I've been sleeping with my uh, friend's wife. You know the Bible says that's sin. What? I just long for that day. I've never had that happen. But that's what they expect to hear. That's why they don't come, because of the shame. and the That's why when people come to me and say, yeah, I'm in trouble. My marriage is falling apart or getting a divorce. Where's the, what's the value in saying, you know that's wrong. You know that's sinful. Where's the value in that? You already know that. I just say, okay, I have just two common responses. Tell me the story, and how can I help you? How can I help you? It's your life. It's not mine. Your marriage is not mine. I do the same thing in theology. That's why I ask so many questions. It's your theology, not mine. I already know what I believe. doesn't matter. I got mine to where I, I believe you. What questions wouldn't you believe? You know, if you want, you're going to destroy your marriage, it's your marriage. What do, you, what do you want from me? Why are you telling me this? How can I help you? And then to step into that and move in a redemptive way to help them with that. That's what I see all the way through these stories, one after the other. So I think that's what will entice people to move closer to the Lord. And as a church, that's what I'd like to be known for. A new commandment that you love one another. I want us to be known for our love, not our confrontation, com confrontation, not our belief systems, not our fights, not our arguments. I want us to be known as people who love. How can I help? my experience is, yeah, yeah, sometimes people want to sin, but you know what? They don't really want to be idiots. They don't really want to be stupid about it. Do they get caught in it? Absolutely. I've been caught in sin many times. I mean, not caught by people, just find myself caught in it. Sometimes I'm caught by people. That's happened. <laughs> not very pleasant. But, but do we really want to 
commit suicide? For the moment, we do. We want what we want, and then we find out when we get it, we sleep with somebody because we think it's going to be wonderful, and then afterwards we find out it was a tragic mistake. You know? It's a devastating mistake. So the best thing we can do is just like my children when we make mistakes, just like God does, when, when the God does his work and gets their attention, then they can come back. Then you can be there to help them. I want people to make a mistake here in our church where it's safe so I can help them. I just want people to be me. And have the courage to say, yeah, I, I stole money. Yeah, I lied. Yeah, I fucked with somebody. Because then we know how to show redemption. We know grace. We know how to help them. That's what I see God doing throughout these three months. And there's plenty more. We've only looked at just a few. The, the story, these stories abound throughout the text. And when you read it, you find out that for God's, for the people that have turned toward him in faith, he always responds with grace. It's amazing. I just love the story of Job. So, you want a conversation? Man up. <laughs> I just think that's wonderful. Puts me back in my place. I'm glad he's God and I'm glad I'm me. And you're really glad I'm not God. <laughs> okay, let's say some things about 2 Samuel. <clears throat> the, there are four primary things going on in 2 Samuel. Um, number one is David's rise. So we finished 1 Samuel with David just coming back. Saul uh, ends his life, and David now uh, hears of Saul's death. So 2 Samuel opens, continuing story. David hears of Saul's death. So we have the big first big thing that happened in 2 Samuel is David's rise to kingship. When Saul proved to be a poor king, God chose David to be Israel's next king. So Saul became jealous of David, and David spent several years running. But David was careful never to usurp Saul's authority. This becomes later. This becomes very, very important in New Testament theology. He waits, waits patiently on God's leading. So when you get to Peter and Paul, Peter says in uh, 1 Peter, listen to these words. They're remarkable words that we would do well to memorize this. Uh, let's see here. Uh, submit, this is chapter 2 of 1 Peter. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to, imp to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and commend those who are doing right. For it is God's will by doing good that you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people. Enjoy that. Live as free people. Do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Show proper respect to everyone. Now here it is. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. The emperor was Nero. And this is in the second half of Nero's life when he was vile and vicious and evil. Paul in 2 Timothy, submit yourselves to kings and those who are in authority. Honor them. Pray for them. That's when Nero was emperor. The worst emperor in the early part of the history of the church. Killed Christians. Both of these men say that. 
And David demonstrates this in his life. Here we, he's even been told by God, you're going to be the next king. He's been anointed by Samuel. And, and Saul's chasing him all over the place for years. And he was careful never to usurp Saul's authority. Never. Even when his men said, everybody's asleep. And so David walks into the camp and he's standing there looking at Saul. And his, and his, his men say, God's given him into your hands. Kill him. He said, I can't. He's a God's anointed. I'm going to show honor. So he just cuts off part of his robe and leaves. The next day he says, hey, uh, where'd you get this? Look what I have, Saul. I could have killed you, but I didn't. Why are you trying to do this to me? He waited until God took the initiative to replace him. It's a very important principle that we should learn, especially this year. Don't go around trashing the president, the administration. Um, Don't do that. Show honor and respect and pray for them. Let God do what God's going to do. And so that's one of the things that comes out. Okay, the second major part of the book is that David chooses Jerusalem for his capital city. So they had already defeated Jerusalem. They had already taken it captive back in the period of the judges. But now David goes in and defeats the Jebusites because uh, it's still occupied by enemies. And he makes it its capital. So he brings the ark to Jerusalem and therefore makes Jerusalem uh, Israel's political and religious center. So Jerusalem remained the capital of Israel and then Judah remained the kingdom divided until 587 B.C. when Nebuchadnezzar sacked the city, burned it, and took everybody away. Jerusalem becomes the center of their hope. Okay, When you think about the United States, think about the icons and things that reflect for us liberty. What kind of things stand out when we talk about our identity as people? Right? Especially when it comes to geography. What stands out to you? defines us as Americans. Statue of Liberty? What else? Hmm? The Liberty Bell? Okay, what else? Washington, D.C.? All the White House, the Capitol building, all those icons, they, they mean something to us. Our identity is captured. No matter how upset we are, we're still captured by these things, aren't we? Uh, they mean something. Well, Jerusalem meant something to the people. And David started that by choosing it as his city. Jerusalem, later to be called Zion, becomes a critical point. And we're going to see Jerusalem surface over and over and over again in the prophets because that's their hope. That's what they really desired. In fact, their final downfall was the Assyrians came and conquered everything except Jerusalem. And they're saying, just like the people did, In 1 Samuel, God's not going to let his ark be captured. Are you kidding me? God's not going to let his temple be destroyed. What does God say? I'm going to destroy my own temple. Just to get your attention and show you. And that's what he did, and we'll see that. The third thing is God's covenant with David. This is really the center, the core of 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel 7. Um, God made a covenant with David. God wanted to build, uh, David wanted to build God a temple. Rather, God promised that he would build David a house. David wanted to build God a house, and God flipped it on its head and blessed David, said, no, I'm going to build you a house. It's going to be an empire. He promised to make David's name great. This is all in 2 Samuel. He promised to make David's name great. He promised a place in which he would plant Israel, a land. He promised to make the land a place of security, These promises all match the language that God gave to Abraham 
which places David square right smack in the line of Abraham. Now we know that looking back, but the people are learning that as God is speaking through him, that David really is God's anointed. Saul was your choice, David is my choice. That's the final message coming. So he aligns David through the language with Abraham, but then he goes on beyond that. He affirms that David's son would build the temple and that divine favor would never depart from David's line. God promised David that his descendant would be established on the throne after him, that his own son would build the temple. God would establish a parental relationship with his son. This becomes critical in theology because we learn something about how God responds. God would establish a parental relationship with his son that would result in discipline rather than rejection. Okay? He rejected Saul as king, but he never rejected David or Solomon. The plan culminates ultimately in Jesus, David's ultimate descendant. Uh, uh, descendant. When Solomon failed to fulfill the requirement of the covenant, God demonstrated grace. He demonstrated grace and he promised, because of David, to leave one tribe under the control of David's line. So this isn't meant as a joke. How many Jews does it take to fulfill the promise of God? It only takes one. That's Paul's argument. <coughs> Jesus. He's a Jew. Therefore, the whole nation pretty much scattered, abandoned God, and went different ways, but one man was faithful. Jesus. And so God fulfilled his promise to Abraham. One man. And then Paul goes on further and says, in case you're not convinced, I too am a Jew. Now there's two of us. Oh, by the way, there's Peter. Now there's Peter. And so that's what we see is that God promised that uh, he promised Solomon, or he promised because of David, to leave one tribe under David's line. And that's what happened. The prophets later brought hope that a Davidic king would come eventually who would meet the conditions and bring restoration to fulfill the Davidic covenant because no king was able to do it. David, in the height of his glory, still blew it, big time. This was the basis for the Messianic promises. So the New Testament came to recognize the authors that Jesus was the one who would bring the renewal of the Davidic covenant. This is the argument of Hebrews. The authors, they began to realize this is the one. He's the one. So by meeting the requirements of the Davidic covenant, Jesus clears the way for a truly eternal king. He is the king who sits on the throne. After Jesus, there could be no other because all the records in Judaism were destroyed 70 A.D. We don't know who's from which tribe. Had to come from the tribe of Judah. So Jesus was the last one. So he is the king, the eternal king. David's sin, this is the fourth major area of 2 Samuel, leads to serious consequences. His inability to control his passions led to adultery with Bathsheba, later murder of her husband, and then you have this cascading decline and effect of what goes on. Because it doesn't take very long. He, You know, Jerusalem was not very big in David's reign. It's only six or eight acres. I mean, that's the size of half the park in our parking lot here. That's all the bigger it was. Are there secrets in the town? None, right? So everybody in the town knew what had happened. David was probably walking the way they built the towns. They're up on the walled town, but they're built on high points. And the king always had the highest point, the great view. He probably walks up to the, to the edge, looks down and says, wow, look at that beautiful woman there. 
because you can look right down into her courtyard and see it. She's bathing. That's what they did. They bathed in the courtyard. So he takes her and has sex with her. Um, she's not really in a position to do much about it. You always obey the king. And so then he has her husband murdered, who, by the way, is one of his best friends. Everywhere you turn and you see David and his mighty men, the 30 mighty men that went with him everywhere through all the thick and thin, Uriah's one of them. Those 30 men were his faithful men. They gave their life for him. So they were his best friends. And one of them was Uriah, who steals his wife and um, has him murdered. That begins the fall, the decline. Ultimately, six, seven years later, that as you see that decline, and we'll see the decline a little bit later on, um, what happens is Absalom, his son, steals the hearts of the people in his kingdom, and David is kicked out of his own kingdom. Um, psalm 3, we're going to look at that one in detail when we get to the Psalms, is the story of that. And so you have this cascading effect of sin upon sin upon sin. David does that. So God forgave David, and David repented, but the consequences persisted for the rest of his life. This is a significant turning point in the story is what happened with Bathsheba. What happened with Bathsheba sets the stage for all the other failures of David down the line. And there were a lot after that. But what we see with Saul and David is that when Saul sinned, God rejected him. When David sinned, he disciplined him. See the difference? Never rejected him as king. That becomes a picture of what it means because how did you become a Christian? God chose you. He came after you. That's why the authors use this language to help us connect the dots with all these stories. Yeah, you chose God by believing in him, but God came after you. He chose you. Just like Saul. The Christians didn't choose you to become a Christian, did they? God did. So this becomes a, a, a key picture of what God does. God does no longer rejects. When he chooses, he doesn't reject. He disciplines. Okay? That's all I'm going to say about Second Samuel. Thoughts, comments? Now, we teach our children all these stories, don't we? David and Goliath, David and Bathsheba, we teach them all that. But they're all theologically very significant and chosen to be placed in these stories to help us grasp over time the bigger narrative of God's relationship with us. So do you see how I'm kind of weaving that these stories into the bigger narrative and we keep seeing this stuff appear in different forms in the New Testament? So what do you think before we jump into Psalms? Anything new? Your view of God changing because of these stories? How is it changing? astounded at the number of churches that know very little about the Old Testament. And that's where all these principles surface.
Easter Sunday, you're going to love what we do at Easter. Revelation 5. kids know the Old Testament sometimes better than we do. They know the story of creation. They know the story of fall. They know the story of Jonah. They know the story of David and Goliath. Uh, they know all the stories, David and Bathsheba. They just don't have no idea what they mean and how put them together. Right? Yeah. Yeah, we know all the stories. We were good at teaching them stories to our kids. That's why I've been working on, as a staff, of kind of an age development approach. You know, our up through fifth grade, our primary goal is to get these kids to know the story. That creates identity. They know the stories of the Bible. And when they begin to move into high school, we need to start teaching them what they mean. How are they connected? Because every one of these stories lays down foundational principles that make sense now under the new covenant. They're all, they're all archetypal. They're all prototypes. They all give us glimpses of what God thinks is important and where they're headed. So when you see the language used here in the New Testament, then you can quit being afraid of God <laughs> and instead just stand back in awe of what he has done. We ask our people, it's, it's amazing to me, we ask our Christians to live out their faith on just little snippets of information and mostly often fear, Right? Don't sin. We're asking them to live out their faith on, on little tiny pieces of information that's undergirding your fear as opposed to you miss the whole story of it. It's a whole, it's thousands of years of God doing the same thing over and over and over again and promising to continue to do the same thing. Show grace and love. And we tend to look at the Old Testament as God being very judgmental. Uh, hopefully I'm overturning some of that. But when you read between the lines and you really watch what God's doing, he's actually quite gracious. Oh, he is judgmental. It's not against those who, who love him. <laughs> it's against the rulers and the leaders who take advantage of the people and hurting people. Yeah, he doesn't mind getting in their face at all. It's like Jesus. Woe to you, Pharisees, you hypocrites. <laughs> but he's not saying that to me. He's saying to you. We go on sinning in our lives every day, and he just keeps showing us grace and showing us grace. Saul, uh, my take on it is that Saul revealed um, a lack of faith. Every time David was confronted, he returned and he repented. And Saul didn't. So I, I think their lives demonstrated it revealed the truth about their faith. They had the right words. They all said they both said the right things, had the right words. But when it came down to it, they both sinned in particularly grievous ways. One repented and the other one didn't. So, you know, David, <laughs> even when with Bathsheba, when he murders Uriah, there's God up there saying, okay, man, he's made a mess down there now. We're going to get his attention. Let's send Nathan. So Nathan, I want you to go to David and tell him the story. So Nathan goes to David and he says, I have a story to tell you, David. He said, uh, we have a man down the road that <coughs> owns a big, vast ranch, thousands of sheep. And his next door neighbor is a poor man that only owns one sheep. 
And so uh, the man that owns the big ranch say, uh, has a guest one day. And so what's appropriate to honor the guests? If you sacrifice one of your sheep, he looked up and he says, yeah, but I don't want to sacrifice all my sheep, so let's go pick this one. So he picks the one poor man's sheep and sacrifices that one. David was furious. And he said, let's get that man. He deserves to die. And Nathan said, you will let me go. He had all these wives. And he said, and if that wasn't enough, I would have given you more. And he took Uriah's only wife, his best friend. And David repented and gave her. It's all good. He repented. So that was a lovely thing to me. Not that one is better than the other. One has genuine faith. Yeah. More like Jesus than the bloodline of David. Yeah. Yeah, tribe of Judah. Right, so you trace Jesus right down through David. So, because he promised in 2 Samuel 7 to David that you will always have uh, a son, an heir on your throne. Your kingdom will be established forever. And that Jesus was the last king. He became the true king, so there's no king after him. But he's of the tribe of Judah, descendant of David. And that's really critical. Matthew, Matthew traces his bloodline through his father, which is through David and Solomon to establish that he had the royal credentials to be the king. So Matthew's very careful to trace that line to show that he was qualified. Hebrews, interestingly enough, is arguing that he is also a priest, but he wasn't a Levite. So therefore, the Aaronic priesthood, the Levitical priesthood, had to be abolished in order for Jesus to become the priest because the law didn't allow the king and the priest from the same tribe king had to come from Judah, the priest had to come from Levi. And so the only way Jesus could become king was to be of the tribe of Judah. The only way he could become priest is to abolish the Levitical priesthood, which is what he did. So therefore he went back to Melchizedek and used Melchizedek and said Jesus is a priest like Melchizedek is, not like Levi or Aaron. So it's pretty powerful when you start putting it all together. So we know all these stories. We've done a great job of teaching our children the great stories, but that's where it stops. And to me, all these stories are what capture theology. They capture everything that we hold to be true. Not only do they capture what we hold to be true, they give us examples of how to live it out. So don't ever think of the Old Testament as not relevant. It is relevant from beginning to end. Everything about it describes our life. Not the rituals and the practices and the cultural values that it's operating within, but the way God interacts with people given those constraints teaches us about Jesus and therefore about us. You see that? More and more, hopefully, you're seeing it. Okay, let's say a word about Psalms. (laughs) Psalms is wisdom literature, and so it fits within the general framework that we find in the ancient Near East. God chose language and linguistic structures familiar to the Israelites. Didn't create new language, didn't create new structure. For instance, it was, a, it was an oral culture. They didn't have these things written down. And so, you know, you think of uh, what we think of as 
children's stories, fairy tales, and all stories with morals, more morale, uh, more morals, things like that. And uh, you were ta- your parents taught you those things along the way because they help you remember them. And as you're growing up, you remember the stories, and you can repeat many of them today, the stories that your parents taught you. And that's the way the Israelites did it as well. So they would they would do a variety of things, uh, create literary devices to help them remember. One, for instance, is called a chiastic structure. Okay, and uh, key the Greek word key is the looks like the letter X. So they would they would you know maybe give a psalm. We're going to see Psalm three does this with five points. The first point and the fifth point are very similar. The second and the fourth are very similar. And the middle one is where the psalm is driving to. So you could easily remember it. Or Psalm 139. Every, uh, every eight verses begins with the letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So the first eight verses start with Aleph. Second eight verses start with uh, uh, Aleph Dave. The next start with Gimel. So each, each set of eight start with a different Hebrew letter. Go through the alphabet. That's how they could remember. So they use all these devices. So this helped them establish national identity uh, just like the other nations, they had their collections of wisdom literature, just like we do, don't we? We have the sayings of Benjamin Franklin. We have the sayings of Abraham Lincoln. We have the Gettysburg Address, all those things that are vaguely familiar to us or familiar enough to give us identity even if we can't repeat them, right? So we do the same thing. So God chose this form of poetry and song to reveal truth about himself And their relationship with him as a redemptive act, they could see it, therefore it captures us as well. So Psalm 1 and 2, for example, we'll jump over to Psalms here. Uh, Let's talk about the order of the Psalms. There's a lot of work is being done, which we didn't do before, in the order of the Psalms. Psalms 1 and 2, for instance, serve as an introduction. Psalm 1 requires the reader to associate with either the way of the righteous or the way of the wicked. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of drunkards, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord. Blessed is the one whose delight is in the law of the Lord, (coughs) who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in its season. You know what? Let's just be done 15 minutes with this. Forget it. We'll do Psalms next year. I think we're going to 830. We'll come back to that. I'm totally thinking we got 15 more minutes. Let's pray and we'll go home. Father, thank you for your goodness and thank you for graciousness. Uh, my friends here who are gracious and allowing me to just babble on and take 15 more minutes of their time. Pray that you would bless them tonight. Give them all safety. Amen. In your son's name we pray. Amen.